0: Welcome back to the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings at hstebbings1996 with two b's on Instagram. And today for the show, I really wanted to do something quite different. I get a ton of founders ask me how they should think about remote work, whether they need to be close to customers, close to clients, what parts of the org need to be together versus not. All these questions centered around location. And so I thought I'd bring an episode together with multiple different leading industry voices sharing their perspectives and experiences on how they've approached location and remote work. I do also really want your feedback here. So do let let me know what you think of this type of episode on Instagram at hdebbings1996. Again, it would be great to see you there. But before we dive into the show today, you have to check out Room. Room helps businesses build a better workplace with thoughtful, sustainable products. Their mobile soundproof phone booth helps you tune out the noise of the open office. It's soundproofed using recycled plastic bottles and fully ventilated to keep you cool, even if the office conversation gets a little bit heated. It's also mobile and flexible, so you can take it when you move offices. It ships flat and it's easy to assemble. In fact, you and a team member can assemble it on site in under an hour. With Room, you can create a quiet space for phone calls, video conferences, and focused work at a fraction of the cost of building a conference room. That's why companies like Nike, Google, NASA, and Salesforce have already chosen Room to build a better workplace. Room also offers free shipping and the best price on the market. As a special offer just to SASTA listeners, we're partnering with Room to give you a 100-day risk-free trial. Go to room.com slash SASTA. That's room.com forward slash SASTA. Speaking of products I love there though with Room, I've also been blown away by Chorus.ai, the number one conversational intelligence platform allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that close deals. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and many more amazing companies already using and loving Chorus. And every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO of Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments, and subscription management platform, igniting growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine.
1: Hi, Harry. My advice for this week is for all SaaS founders to know that they're not alone. This is a super hard thing that we are all doing every day, and there are some very cool communities like SaaSter and Medium in which many founders share their journeys, good and bad. We all hear about the massive financing rounds and the large M&A deals, but we need more founders to step up, and candidly share their stories so that we can all learn from each other.
0: Could not agree with Tyler there. More, getting help from peers means help finding success. And you can also find success with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. And to find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. Now, I'm very excited to dive into what is a very unique episode, as I said, centered all around location and remote work.
2: Good, that's perfect, okay, I think we're warmed
0: up. We're starting with Michael Pryor, founder at Trello, on how to create cohesion between your remote work team.
3: It's actually harder if you only have a few remote people because then your company doesn't actually feel remote, right? Like one of the things for us was it got easier as more and more people got remote because then we would do things with remote in our minds. Like we would have a meeting and everyone would just be on the video conference on their computer. We wouldn't all get in a conference room and have one person on the TV, you know, who would feel sort of disconnected from the group. It was just everyone was on equal footing. Everyone was in the the video conference. So I think to the extent that you act like a remote company can be really really important and make it a lot easier. So I think you have to prioritize that. It there it comes with costs. So for example, the social aspect that you might have if you're all in the in one place, you sort of miss out on that and you have to figure out ways to deal with that. For example, we get everyone together in person once a year, which is not cheap, but it's it's something you have to do. And we also sort of schedule these impromptu what we call them Mr. Rogers meetings where four people from the company will be paired together It's sort of at random. You just sort of get connected to somebody at the company to just hang out and talk for 20 minutes on Friday about whatever, not work related, just sort of just get in a video conference and just chat and meet some people. Because if you are working as a distributor remote company, most of the time you're only talking to the people in your team. And so you're not forming connections with the other parts of the company. And so you have to basically put in place some kind of structure to do that. That might normally happen in a physical workplace where you're in the lunchroom or at the coffee bar or something like that so it's more about understanding how you're, you're the way that your company work and figuring out things that you
0: might need to do that you wouldn't have to do if
3: you were all in one place
0: the next segment is with colton andrus founder and ceo at gremlin on why he believes remote work is the future of employment
2: In my mind, this is just an evolution in the way that we do business. No longer are the days, I I said this, it came up in conversation yesterday, no longer are the days where we have one corporate headquarters. There are many places where people are able to work and coordinate. And one of the keys there has been having good sources of truth. You know, now that we can use something like Slack or a, a chat program, then we can move the office conversations from being at HQ and into a place where everyone that needs to know can observe them or participate in them. And so I think it's just more powerful. It allows us to be more flexible. It allows us to hire in different places. It allows us to, when people want to travel or they need to go home and be with family or whatever comes up, it seems just superior in the logistics.
0: For the engineers of the world, it absolutely makes sense. When working in sales and marketing, where maybe kind of the idea sharing and kind of team collaboration elements are more central, do you find it still has such success? I think that there's a
2: balance. It's In my mind, it's a, it's a bit of an 80 20. I think most of the time you still get the value of being remote, whether you're in sales or marketing. Those same kind of conversations and, and context sharing things can happen in text or on a video call, but there is value in being face to face and having that camaraderie. We actually have our entire team together today from kind of around the country and around the bay to have an all hands and to, to share context and then to hang out and play poker later and, and drink a couple of beers. And so you want that but it doesn't have to be all or none you can have a little bit of both
0: so with the many positives you said that everything from cost to personal freedom what are the big challenges then in establishing this and what did you have to overcome to really make it a part of gremlin
2: yeah it was easy in the early days because it was a couple of engineers just trying to get work done and coordinating but as we grew it became more of a challenge I think the thing that I learned that surprised me was it's not necessarily where people are but when people are if you have somebody we have had somebody early on that was in Europe and the time zone overlaps between Europe and California were such that most of our meetings and most of our discussions needed to happen in this hour or two overlap. And a lot of the ad hoc discussion or debates that would come up would happen more in the afternoon Pacific time. He didn't feel part of, and that left him feeling less part of the team. And so while we tried to shift time and do things as much as possible to support him, ended up not being a good fit for him and, and he left the team. And so I, this is one that I always kind of retrospect in my head, How, what could we have done better? How could we have approached it? And in part, the lesson is time zone overlap is important. It's something to be thoughtful of.
0: Can I ask you, you mentioned the element of cost there earlier. Do you have comp adjusted to location? Obviously San Francisco, as you said, living in the Bay, it's one of the most expensive places in the world to live compared to say Texas, which is cheaper. Do you have comp adjusted?
2: Yeah. So we can be flexible in that regard. You know, I've moved to you Using market data for different locations in how we choose to put offers forward and in how we look at compensation. In the first early days, in the first few hires, it wasn't as relevant. You know, some people could be paid a little bit less for cost of living, but we were all making less and we were picking people up for what we could. As we've grown, I've I've seen it to be a little bit more, but frankly, while the Bay is one of the most expensive places, a lot of the other places I'm finding talent, the cost of living and the market has risen, not to the same extent, but proportionally. And so I think it's an advantage, but it's not one that I'm super high on that I'm writing down. That's like my favorite thing about it.
0: Next, we have Sid, founder and CEO at GitLab, discussing why they have an all-remote team structure.
4: Yeah, so GitLab is now 650 people. We're growing this year from 400 to 1,000 people. And one of the particular things about it it is that it's an all-remote company. So everyone works from the location they prefer. Most people work from home, but will also pay for an office. But there's no shared offices where people congregate. So we work to using Zoom and Slack and Google Docs and a whole lot of GitLab to collaborate across more than 50 countries. I mean, I absolutely love that structure in
0: there. This is such a novel chance to make a deep dive on it. So I hope that's okay. But when we chatted before, you said transparency and iteration are key for working across time zones. You left me hanging there.
4: So what did you really mean by this transparency and iteration? How does that play out so successfully? Yeah, the hardest part from working across time zones is that it needs to be asynchronous. You have to be able to collaborate without being in the in in a meeting at the same time. So So iteration helps because you bite off smaller things. So iteration means reduce the scope, do a smaller thing, but do it really quickly and get it out there, get it in the market. And the smaller the thing you do, the less coordination it requires. If you're doing a six month thing, you better make sure that all the departments across the company are bought into that. If you're doing a two day thing, you can just do it, release it. If it's not exactly the right direction for the next step, you can take that step in a slightly different direction. So you'll get feedback much more easily. So iteration reduces the coordination costs, and it's a core value at GitLab. The other thing is transparency. You want people to be able to work without shoulder tapping. If you need to ask someone for something, not only does it interrupt both the sender and the receiver of the information, but also it's it's just not possible if that person is not working at that time. You can't do it. So at GitLab, we write a lot of things down. We have a handbook. It's public and Creative Commons, so lots of people are copying from it and being inspired by it. But it's over 3,000 pages and it contains many of the things you would normally not find documented at other companies.
0: Next, we have Dylan Sorota, founder and CEO at Terminal, on why we should maybe think about embracing geographically distributed teams earlier in company lives.
5: I think simply building a company in one market like Silicon Valley is harder than ever before to sustain. In fact, I think it's unsustainable for 99% of the companies out there. Talent is obviously the most precious resource for a technology company, and being isolated in one market actually poses massive long-term risks to a company's ability to compete, especially with high attrition rates of employees or the risk of a new overnight unicorn that can take up significant portion of the talent from the ecosystem. So. We We believe geographically diversifying or building teams across multiple markets is a muscle memory that you should start building much earlier than conventional wisdom would suggest. And we're seeing companies now do that on day one or with employee number one. And I think that trend will only continue to be the norm. And we've spoken to companies that wait to do this much later when they have 50, 80, 100 engineers. And that's much more difficult to actually re-engineer your practices and divisions of responsibility or you now have a dated tech stack that makes it increasingly hard to find engineers that are actually excited to build upon the technologies you're
0: using that may just be a few years behind the modern trend. No, absolutely. It seems so much easier to insert that kind of culture and discipline from day one. I promise this isn't a light speed advert, though, but I did speak to (laughs) Nackal before the show, and he said then, with that in mind and the benefits you just posited, what are the key aspects to making remote teams successful? So
5: there's many aspects here. I think first, market selection is key. So understanding where you want to take your team and the right place for that team to grow. And there's a lot of factors that go into that in terms of talent, how big is the talent pool, who are the incumbents in the market with large engineering teams, what technologies are popular in that city or that region, what universities are local there that could feed into the long-term potential talent pool, how aligned are time zones, how easy is travel. So there's a lot from overall market selection, but from a team standpoint, there's no question that you need strong initial leadership for that team to be successful. So hiring the first senior tech lead is critical. It doesn't have to be the first hire, but I think it does need to be in the first few to establish a strong foundation for that team and allow that lead to start making some of the hiring decisions with local knowledge of talent on the ground. And lastly, and I think a very important factor is making that team feel like first class citizens. And this really stems from giving complete product ownership to that team and not just thinking that they'll fix bugs or work on lower priority items. And doing that early on gives that team, I think, a vote of confidence from headquarters that they're equal contributors, which is very important in establishing trust across the offices.
0: Before we discuss kind of the conventional problems that are often associated, one for me that I always get concerned by is just seamless lines of communication. What've been your learnings on ensuring kind of seamless communication flows between distributed teams? So, one of the I think most important factors is time zone alignment. I think what we've
5: heard from feedback is the more hours that you have to synchronously communicate whether that's over Slack or other tools and systems, that's one of the most important factors. And then obviously, I think with, we're at this stage in time where a lot of those technologies are just being adopted, whether it's in your core office in San Francisco or when you're making a concerted effort to establish new channels and new pathways. The other thing I think most companies need to change is just over-documenting or increasing the documentation that they have of decisions that are being made at various meetings and points and having a repository where someone could look back and see the timeline of those decisions. Those are really
0: helpful. Yeah, no, I i love- Love that transparency. But the, the common pushback I also get is the detrimental impact on culture for having distributed teams. But when we chatted before, and I love this quote, you said companies overvalue their culture. What makes you say this? And, and how do you think about culture across remote teams? Yes. And to clarify what
5: I mean by that, it's that companies overvalue the culture they have today and undervalue the culture they can evolve into and create in the future. So this was a big lesson for me from Julia Hartz at Eventbrite that culture should not be stagnant or overly preserved. It should evolve with the team that you build a real bottoms up approach. And as that relates to building remote teams, I think companies need to understand that as much as they want to just export their culture to new markets, they really should be equally importing culture from that market into headquarters. I'm not sure who said it or coined the phrase, but I really like it. It's that culture is a verb, not a noun. And I think that's very much the spirit of what I believe in and what can ultimately build longer term strength for for a company with respect to culture.
0: Now we have Rachel Carlson on why she made the move with her company Guild from San Francisco to Denver.
6: Sure. So when we were starting Guild, it was a handful of us. We were working on Stanford's campus and had a small office in San Francisco, but we knew we needed to make two big sets of hires in our coming year. One was the product and edge team. And two was our first group of coaches who work directly with our students. And you can think of them as half of a inside support team and half a retention team. And so the starting advice was keep your lead leadership and your tech team in San Francisco and have everybody else go somewhere else more affordable. But I thought that was bananas because I needed our product team to be constantly working with our coaches to build the right product that they would use and that our students would use in interaction with one another. And so I had a strong conviction that leaving San Francisco was the right move. I'm from Denver, so it candidly had a running head start, but we did look at a handful of other cities. And what I ultimately decided to do because our investors were pretty nervous about this in 2015, (laughs) (laughs) was I posted the job description in Palo Alto, San Francisco, and Denver. And lo and behold, the far and away best candidate was out of Denver. It happened to be also a female director of ENG, Jess Rusin, who today is our SVP of engineering. And when I put the resumes in front of the investors, it was so clear to them that if we could find a director like that, imagine the team she could bring. And her references were so off the charts. Everyone said they would follow her wherever she went. And so that was the first notch in proving how we could do it and why we should make the move. But it's been the best choice we've made to make sure that we've kept those two teams together and that we've grown both product and engineering in the same place that we've grown our customer support.
0: It's so interesting to hear you say about the benefits of hiring there in Denver, because whenever I talk to people outside of the court tech hubs, they always say, oh, we have to hire people from them or talk about the challenges of it. Why do you think there is this misconception then that you have to be in the tech hubs to hire the best talent? And how do you push back against that?
6: So you just have to think about it as a different funnel. So I think in San Francisco, the funnel is very, very wide, but your chance at winning at the bottom of the funnel when you're an early stage company is incredibly hard when you're competing with Google and Facebook salary packages, right? In Denver, it's a narrower funnel, but we win at the bottom of the funnel always or nearly always. And so it's just a different equation. I also think in Denver, it's worth noting you can also recruit a lot of people to move here. A, a number of our leaders have moved specifically here, and now more and more of our employees in general are actually moving to Denver to join the company.
0: In terms of kind of time around, location for companies. I often do see leadership teams in San Francisco and then the rest of the teams now more and more in Austin, say, and many other different parts of the US. How do you feel about that split tactic with the leadership team in one place and then engine sales and marketing maybe in another? How do you think about that?
6: So I think that that's not a great idea. I think there are, and I'll be controversial about it, I guess. I think there are three groups of people you can live near. You can live near your employees, you can live near your customers, or you can live near your capital. And my argument would, be that it is far more important that you live near your employees and you live near your customers than living near your capital. And I think Guild's been a testament to that. And, you know, I've been able to have fantastic relationships with our investors without living in the same neighborhood as them.
0: Now we have Eric Christopher, founder and CEO of Zylo on how being outside of the valley impacts or maybe doesn't impact fundraising ability.
7: You know, there is no question some disadvantages, you know, I would say, but they can be overcome. You just have to, to put in a plan and, and execute it. And when we raised our Series A, one of the investors I talked to that, that lives in the Bay Area asked me like, hey, are you, uh, you going to rent an apartment out here for a month or two and bring the family and come raise and stay out there? And I think the real reality is, is that you have to first off, it's like you need, there's gonna be a certain profile of investor that likes and maybe even prefers to invest out of the Bay Area. There's are some that love that. And there's many also that really just and even told me directly. They just really want there's enough opportunities and investments to make in the Bay Area, and they're just kind of stick there, and that's fine too. So the key is that you have to run a, a real process where you talk to a lot of investors and kind of shake out, you know, profile of fit of people. I want an investor that wants to come and build the company, support, you know, the the technology community in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana we were, were based and Byron was one of those individuals. I also think that the kind of always fundraising and relationship building is really important. So every time that you're in, you know, that I travel to San Francisco or New York or other markets, you know, typically I'm meeting with investors to build relationships and kind of find those attributes out of someone that wants to invest out of the Bay Area. So it's uh, certainly uh, something you have to overcompensate with when you're not able to just grab coffee down the street with, uh, with most of the investors that are in the Bay Area.
0: Can I ask, is it actually not also quite helpful to be outside of the Bay Area for the always be raising because then at least there's kind of real deliberate intention to your meeting with investors, even for a coffee where they've like deliberately sought you out. It's booked a long time ahead with your dates for that trip compared to wasting endless hours just because an investor's in the next door block and it works and is much yeah. more haphazard.
7: Yeah, that's a good question. I I do think that because we're not there every day, that, that when we are in town, it's maybe a bit more of a special opportunity to meet us and, and see you know kind of what we're building and stuff like that. And one thing I would say too, is that as much as like, you know, I just mentioned how, you know, you might have a Bay Area investor that's not interested in investing, you know, maybe in the Midwest or something like that. All of them have generally, you know, been helpful and are willing to meet and, you know, give give me great ideas about the business and things like that. So I think that like sort of generosity of time and, and things like that, because that's so hard for everyone. Everyone's so busy that the, the fact that I'm not there every single, you know, week and day helps to get some of those meetings. So, you know, it, I tend to have a lot of luck if, uh, you know, through, through the network of someone being interested in learning, about our business for sure.
0: So we had Sid discuss being an all-remote team with GitLab earlier. Well, now we're hearing from Yeppe Rindam, founder and CEO at Pleo, on why they have a part-remote structure.
8: Yeah, so we're we 106 people, and I would say we roughly have 25 people that are working remotely. It's mostly engineering, I would say, and it's worked really well for us. I mean, we haven't really had, I would say, hardly any churn in our remote workers, so we've somehow found a formula that, that has worked. Even our engineering leadership team is remote. I think there are, like, the more low-practical, things like, you know, you need to have your mics in every room, your 360 degree cameras, you need to have your meeting hygiene in place so that it works with everyone's time zone and stuff like that. And then I think it's a little bit about the culture in the company as well. We base a lot of stuff on both trust, but also like transparency and we communicate everything and we encourage people to participate across teams and so forth. And I think that becomes even more important if you're fully or partly remote. And then I would say the last piece, you can sort of never replace the human touch and the human interaction in person. I think it's very difficult not to have that at all. At least, you know, if you hit chubby waters, you know, I don't think the loyalty with your remote workers will be as strong if there's no sort of human relationship in place. And the way we do that is we make sure to bring people together four times a year. And uh, they also spend their first month in the office here in in Copenhagen. And when we are together, we make sure that we really push a lot of social activities and we make sure that remote workers and everyone else is sort of exposed to each other's uh, cross-team etc and I think that is just super super important if you want the same sort of engagement everywhere in the company. Can I ask I'm, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to the kind of
0: optimization of processes what tools do you think is critical to really enable the team who
8: works remotely to coordinate seamlessly with the team in the office or what, what does that look like today for you guys? I would say for, for meetings and stuff like that you know we, we're in love with the OWL which has uh, you know sound sensors and, and 360 cameras and microphone because it works just really well and it's cheap so uh, we we use that in the meeting rooms and zoom everywhere so you can connect to any meeting room for communication we still use slack you know it has pros and cons but i think it, it kind of works for us if you have the the right hygiene around it and then be mindful that the remote workers here are mostly engineers and i think working remotely works quite well in engineering because there's even benefits of different time zones with code reviews and so forth so you can almost sequence your day and you know with code reviews and in github and all that kind of stuff you know it's almost designed around remote working principles I would personally be a little bit more reluctant when it comes to stuff like sales, at least you know in a fast moving sales environment. I think we have a lot of benefits from having a good sales culture in the same room. Because it's just we get a lot out of, you know, a little bit of music and you know having power hours two times a day where everyone stands up and they do that prospecting and call out and stuff like that. And I think that kind of culture is a little bit more difficult if it was remote. So that's why we focus a lot of engineering here.
0: Now, I have to say, I did so enjoy collating some of the views from the best people in the industry on the subject of location and whether to go remote. Now, I would love to hear your thoughts there. If you enjoyed this episode and this kind of thematic approach, do let me know. Or if you have any other feedback, you can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two b's. It would be great to hear your thoughts there. But before we leave you today, you have to check out Room. Room helps businesses build a better workplace with thoughtful, sustainable products. Their mobile soundproof phone booth helps you tune out the noise of the open office. It's soundproofed using recycled plastic bottles and fully ventilated to keep you cool even if the office conversation gets a little bit heated. It's also mobile and flexible so you can take it when you move offices. It ships flat and is easy to assemble. In fact you and a team member can assemble it on site in under an hour. With Room you can create a quiet space for phone calls, video conferences and focused work at a fraction of the cost of building a conference room. That's why companies like Nike, Google, NASA and Salesforce have already chosen Room to build a better workplace. Room also offers free shipping and the best Price on the market. As a special offer just to Sasta listeners, we're partnering with Room to give you a 100-day risk-free trial. Go to room.com slash Sasta. That's room.com forward slash Sasta. Speaking of products I love there though with Room, I've also been blown away by Chorus.ai, the number one conversational intelligence platform allowing you to unlock hidden insights from customer conversations that close deals. So whether you want to increase quota attainment, coach and ramp new reps more effectively, or clone winning talk tracks, head over to Chorus.ai to join the likes of GitLab, Amplitude, AdRoll, and many more amazing companies already using and loving Chorus. And every week, we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO of Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments, and subscription management platform, igniting growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine.
1: Hi, Harry. My advice for this week is for all SaaS founders to know that they're not alone. This is a super hard thing that we are all doing every day. And there are some very cool communities like Saster and Medium in which many founders share their journeys, good and bad. We all hear about the massive financing rounds and the large M&A deals, but we need more founders to step up and candidly share their stories so that we can all learn from each other.
0: Thank you, Tyler. And getting help from peers really does mean finding success. And you can also find success with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can and benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I so appreciate all your continued support. It really does mean so much to me, and I can't wait to bring you a brilliant episode next week.